The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So let's go ahead and we will look at God's Word together. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 24. Also on the back there you've got a, an outline. Uh, the title we put there, if you haven't been with us, we are going through First. Corinthians chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. We are at 1 Corinthians 7 actually is a unit that goes together. It's really Paul's dealing with one major theme. And he's addressing this theme based on a question the Corinthians had asked him in a letter. And he's dealing with answering this theme demographic by demographic, depending upon where you're at in life. And so their question had to do with, now that we're Christians, uh, what's our status? What do we do about this thing called like uh, sexual intimacy? Because I used to be a pagan my whole life and immorality was everywhere in many different ways and I didn't have a Christian worldview and I didn't have an Old Testament ethic and then I became a Christian and it seems like everything's new and different and we kind of don't, we've heard different things and uh, now that we're spiritual, now that we're Christian, we're supposed to do this, we're supposed to refrain from this. Uh, so they were confused. And you can see that in many places. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is answering that question. Well, let me address this issue of the gift of sex as God has given it to the human race from a biblical point of view. And we'll deal with every demographic of people and how that applies to you right now where you're at in life. So uh, God's going to address every person, no matter where you are in life right now in this chapter, whether you are single because you've never been married and you're a virgin. There's a big chunk of Scripture waiting for you next week, starting at verse 25 and following. You'll be addressed directly. Whether you are engaged, I believe is also in this chapter. We have some of you here. Whether you are single by virtue of death and being a widow or widower, you are in this chapter. Whether you're single by virtue of divorce, you are in here. Uh, whether you are two Christians married currently, you are in here. Whether you are married and you are unequally yoked because one of you is a Christian and one is an unbeliever, you are in here. That covers just about Everybody. So there's something for everyone. Today, uh, the big section we're covering, verses 10, um, really to the end of 20, the emphasis is on divorce and the issue of divorce related to married people. Don't check out today because we're talking about divorce if you're not married and you're thinking, uh, this doesn't apply to me. It does apply to you. Especially verses 20. 1 to 24 are going to, actually 17 to 21 are going to apply to everybody, whether you're married, divorced or not. But the emphasis is on divorce today. This is part three on divorce. A divorce is a very complicated subject. It is a very sensitive topic. I understand that. I laid that out in the two previous messages. As a matter of fact, I was thinking, if I, Raise your hand if you know somebody that's divorced. Go ahead, just raise your hand if you know someone divorced. Well, that's <laughs> it's almost all of us. It's a reality. I am no foreigner to divorce. In my fam my immediate family, ten kids in our family growing up, five divorces occurred in my immediate family. Devastating, especially the we were a close-knit family growing up. And the first divorce when my uh, one of my siblings and their spouse got divorced, it was not just devastating to them but to me as like a first grader what do you mean he's not going to be my uncle anymore but you got what do not comprehend so uh it affects it it deeply 
affects people and, and it leaves very sensitive and long-term wounds and memories. So God knows that. His grace is sufficient. So keep that in mind as we go through this. Uh, the people that will probably be most sensitive of all are people who maybe have actually gone through a divorce themselves or maybe more than one divorce. And I preached on divorce based on this passage back in July, June and July, and got some feedback from some people here, members. Good feedback from divorced people who had been through a divorce or two. Believers, members of our church. It was helpful. Um, so I really appreciate that. So we're talking about real issues, real people, and that's why I love the Bible, because it, it's real, down to earth. Um, so let's go ahead, and I divided, I, I, I divided this section up, verses 10 to 24, really into three points. That's points 3, 4, and 5. But before that, just a little intro, again, to remind us and to lay the proper foundation uh, as we talk about divorce. Again, divorce is incredibly complicated. We can't, I'm not going to do an exhaustive biblical survey on divorce today, and three weeks is not sufficient in terms of being comprehensive and answering all of your questions. Being pretty thorough, three Sundays. But if you have further questions, I would recommend The Divorce Dilemma. Check it on Google, Amazon. Helpful book. I'd also warn you, be careful as to who you're going to consult and read from a biblical pastoral point of view to get wisdom and advice on divorce because not everybody says the same thing. There are pastors who give advice and theologians and Bible scholars that I think give um, stilted advice or misguided advice or it's lacking information or it's just downright wrong and can be damaging and hurtful. It's just the way it is. So don't l just listen to one person. Uh, get good, many, several perspectives from a lot of reliable Bible teachers if you want to know what the Bible has to say. And then also ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten your understanding as well in terms of applying it to personal situations you are aware of. Very complicated. But God has the answers. His word is sufficient. So uh, by way of introduction, let's go ahead and look at the introductory points, which would be point one and point two. Uh, point number one, there are three popular views on divorce in the church. Three popular views. I mean, there's maybe seven or nine out there, but I consolidated these down into three main umbrella positions from an evangelical, quote, so-called biblical point of view. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about views that are categorically and totally wrong, but these are the ones that are prominent in the Christian world. Maybe you're familiar with it. Maybe this is the only view you have heard. Um, so here are the three views on divorce and divorce and remarriage. There's the view that says Christians are to never divorce under any conditions or circumstances whatsoever, ever. And they're, and if, even if they do violate that command, under no conditions are they to get remarried, ever. I'm not saying that's the biblical view. I'm saying that is a very popular Christian view. And one of the most well-known proponents of that view would be John Piper. That is his view. Uh, he taught a very long uh, series on divorce. Uh, and in the end, if you distill it all down, that would be his view. And he admits that uh, it's a little, not harsh, but he admits his standard is very high compared to most folks. Very stringent, very narrow. Hank Hanegraaff, Bible Answerman, he'd have the same view. Uh, second popular view would be uh, for the Christian, 
divorce is not ideal. Divorce is wrong. Divorce is sin. God doesn't like it. But you can get divorced as a Christian under limited and very specific conditions, namely two conditions. Uh, If your partner commits adultery and reconciliation doesn't happen, then you are allowed to divorce your spouse. Uh, And also, if you're unequally yoked and the unbeliever decides to bail on you and leave and they initiate the divorce, uh, this position says that the Bible gives those two allowances for divorce. And also, uh, if your partner commits adultery and there's a divorce, the partner that didn't commit adultery is allowed to remarry. And also, if you're unequally yoked, the believer leaves and divorces you, the believer is allowed to remarry. So a proponent of that view would be John MacArthur. Uh, So these aren't any slouches in terms of Bible teachers, Piper and MacArthur, who are, by the way, good friends. And then the third view, uh, divorce and remarriage for the Christian is pretty much okay without these limited conditions. In other words, it's, it's okay, all things being considered, all things being equal after trying to work through reconciliation, the problems, counseling, and you just kind of, oh man, we're, we can't resolve this. We have irreconcilable differences. Then divorce is okay for Christians. It's even okay for a Christian to divorce a Christian without these limited conditions of adultery and an unbeliever leaving. It's okay to get divorced for other reasons. That's that might be the most popular view today in America, American Christianity, actually. So we know that uh, and I mentioned this, Charles Stanley, pastor and Bible teacher, uh, him and his wife got divorced in the early 2000s after over 30 years of marriage. And it was under this third category. Not that Charles, sorry, Charles Stanley, Charles Stanley. uh, He doesn't believe he should have been divorced, but that's what happened. It was not for adultery. It was not for being an unbeliever. It was under this third category. And that's pretty common among Christians who get divorced. So just so you know, those are the three popular common views. You've probably heard one taught or emphasized. So just be aware of those. Uh, I don't think they're all right, and I don't think they're all wrong. I think one of these is correct and clearly taught in Scripture, so we'll talk about that. Um, And with that, just a few more introductory points. I want you to turn now, go to Mark chapter 10. Again, laying the foundation on the issue. What is the biblical view of divorce and remarriage? So, uh, Mark chapter 10. This is the end of Jesus' ministry. About to be crucified. He's on the move. On his way to Jerusalem. Not there yet. Gets questioned on marriage and divorce by some Pharisees who wanted to test him and make him look like a a buffoon in public. It was a trick question. It was not a legitimate question. It was not a good question. They didn't have Jesus' best interest in mind. As a matter of fact, they wanted him to mess up in public on this teaching so that he might get beheaded as John the Baptist did in the same region. Um, So in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, the Pharisees have a trick question for Jesus and they ask him about marriage and divorce. And then in the end, Jesus says this. Look, verse 11 and 12 is key. Mark 10, 11 and 12. Jesus said to his disciples... After this Q&A with the Pharisees, he said to his disciples, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Wow. So on the face of it, this sounds like if you get divorced and you marry somebody else, you are in sin. You're committing adultery. There's no exception clauses here. So it's, it's this verse that leads 
John Piper and others to say, see, there are no exceptions. You, you are to never get divorced under any condition whatsoever. You are never to remarry under any conditions if you are a Christian. Unless your spouse died, but when it comes to divorce. So they like to emphasize Mark 10. Um, but I believe the Apostle Paul is actually going to quote from Jesus from the Gospels in 1 Corinthians 7 in the passage we're going to look at today on divorce when he quotes Jesus on divorce, and I would propose that uh, Paul is going to be referring to Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew 19. He is not referring to Mark 10. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 5 now. Same incident, or actually Matthew 19 has the same incident, but uh, in Matthew 5 is a little earlier in Jesus' ministry. Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus says the same thing. So if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, 32, Sermon on the Mount, early on in his ministry. Jesus said, uh, starting at verse 31, it was said, no, no, notice it doesn't say it was written. He's not saying Moses wrote in the Pentateuch. He's not saying it is written. He's not saying it's scripture says. He is saying in verse 31, it was said. You know what that means? That means that your Sadducees and your Pharisees and your scribes have twisted Scripture and have made human tradition and have come up with faulty theology. And that's why he says it has been said. He says that consistently throughout this passage. He's not saying it is written. He doesn't disagree with Moses. He's taking the Pharisees head on for misusing Scripture. It, it's been told, it's been said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In other words, he's saying, you, you know, you've heard it said by your Bible teachers like the Pharisees that a man can divorce his wife for any reason he wants to pretty easily. All he has to do is just give her a certificate of divorce. And they take that verse out of Deuteronomy 24, take it out of context. Boom. And that was the view of the Pharisees in Jesus's day. It was very easy to divorce. A, a Jewish man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. And then just go on to the next wife. And Jesus says, verse 32, uh, but I say to you that that ain't legit. Here's what I tell you. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, okay, every person that gets divorced, except for the reason of unchastity or, or adultery or fornication or immorality, porneia is the word, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So in Matthew 5, Jesus gives an exception clause. Don't get divorced, but if there's immorality or adultery, there is a condition for divorce allowed by God. That seems to contradict Mark chapter 10. They don't contradict each other. Matthew's just giving more information of what Jesus said that day, especially in Matthew 19. And there are others, Bible. I told you this, other Bible teachers, my Greek uh, teacher when I was in college at Westmont College, Dr. Gundry, said, uh, actually, that exception clause in Matthew 5 isn't there, it doesn't belong there. Some scribe added it later. Jesus never said that. There is no exception clause. You should never get divorced ever for any reason. That's what he told us. That's what he believes. That's what he writes today. And that's the same view that John Piper has. So uh, thinking there is actually no evidence that this was added later. There's no evidence that this passage doesn't belong in Matthew 5. There's every evidence that it does belong there in Matthew. There's every evidence that Matthew said that, that Jesus said that. Matthew wrote it because Jesus said it, because God said it. And this is actually consistent with Old Testament teaching, believe it or not. Not new information. So there is an exception clause. So I think that's the biblical position. That if your spouse commits adultery and you can't reconcile or forgive each other and they just bail on you and go off and with their other spouse, that 
that they pursue and they abandon the marriage and you're left alone and because of an unfaithful spouse and they divorce you or leave you or abandon you, you as the faithful spouse are freed by God to remarry. That's what I believe based on this passage and, and others. So important to look at those. Uh, how do I know that Paul's probably going to refer to Matthew's gospel and not Mark? Well, because I believe the Apostle Paul who's writing this about 54 AD uh, very well may have had access to the Gospel of Matthew, which probably was already written, and Mark wasn't written yet, in my opinion. Liberal liberal scholars want to date Mark earlier than Matthew. But the church for 1,800 years, especially the early church fathers, have unanimously said that, no, Matthew wrote first. He was the apostle. He was Levi. He was trained with Jesus. Uh, it was the first Gospel. Mark came later. Mark was an apostle. Mark got his information from somebody else, from Peter. What in the world would Mark be copying, or why would Matthew be copying Mark? So the church position is that Matthew came first, and those dates, Matthew being written as maybe even as early as 45 A.D., which means Paul could have very well had uh, that in his possession. But we do know for a fact that Jesus gave information to Paul on divorce, and we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 7. So let's go ahead and turn there now. And that's all the introductory stuff I wanted to give you. Let's look at our... Uh, second point there and that is why is there divorce i mean sometimes we just miss asking the simple question as christians and as the church because after all i mean i've heard that from unbelievers personally individually and at large oh you christians you think you're so holy and do everything right and condemn everybody else and you you guys get divorced too if what you said was true then christians wouldn't get divorced and That's kind of a zinger because it kind of stings because what they're saying is kind of true. Because if you look at the statistics, Christians do get divorced, even from other Christians, at a pretty high percentage rate. And that's been true for a long time. So that is uh, kind of a good rebuke for the Christian world and the church to stop and pause and think, and wow, yeah, that's true. Why are Christians getting divorced? And should that be the case? And shouldn't we be different? And... After all, when we became Christians, we became perfect, right? We never sin anymore. That's what my wife would say about me. No, that's a lie. See, I just sinned at the pulpit. No, when you become a Christian, you don't become perfect and sinless. You become forgiven by Jesus because he's perfect. And we as Christians, we still battle with sin. Sin lives in us. The devil is still real. Uh, We marry, even if you're two Christians, you're two sinners living together. That's the reality. That's the Christian life. So we aren't the model. Jesus is the model. So we need to ask the big question. So why is there divorce at all? Why do Christians get divorced? Every divorce ends as a result ultimately of unforgiveness between at least one of the partners. Every divorce ends as a result of uh, the couple not getting along, not liking each other, not being able to resolve things. It's usually an accumulation of events that happen over time that is progressive and mounts and uh, things aren't being dealt with and the sun is going down on the anger again and again and again and again and a deep root of bitterness begins to develop over time and then you before you know it you've got a divorce between two christians and when you have the divorce between two christians that's not the beginning of something bad that's the end result of a lot of bad things that probably went on for years that were unaddressed so why do why do married couples get divorced Why do married couples argue and fight? Why do married couples not get along? Why do they have skirmishes? Why do they say mean things to each other? 
and think evil thoughts towards each other. You that are children living at home with your parents, maybe every once in a while you see your parents not treating each other in a godly manner. Maybe you even witness an argument or a fight or a dispute, or maybe you've lived through or even watching your parents get separated and divorced, and you're thinking, wow, my parents are Christian, or they're supposed to love each other. Why is this happening? It's a legitimate question. The Bible gives us the answer. That's number two. Why is there a divorce? Why is there uh, marital spats? It's uh, a, a divine curse. That's the answer. There's a divine curse on the institution of marriage given by God the Creator Himself. And I do want you to look at Genesis chapter 3 because we can't be reminded of this enough. This is reality. The world disregards this truth. But this is basic to living in this fallen world, this messed up life. God created Adam and Eve. It was good. Their marriage was perfect, flawless, sinful. For a while at least, they got along in every conceivable way with perfect unity, never argued, never fought, never sinned against each other. Then they both fell into sin. They disobeyed God, and as a result, God will give them a consequence for their sin. Those consequences are delineated in Genesis 3, starting at verse 14 and following. And look at the consequences that God gives to Adam, Eve, the snake, and Satan, and get this, a curse even on the Savior as a result of sin of Adam and Eve. And we are living with the results of every single one of these curses and condemnations from God today, even though this happened 6,000 years ago. 6,000 years ago. And it's why our lives are messed up, why our marriages are messed up. Maybe you're dating right now. You've been dating for three months or six months or a year. We used to get along so good when we were going out for only two weeks, and now we just fight all the time. (laughs) Why is that? Same reason. You're getting to know that sinner pretty good. And that sinner's getting to know you. Welcome to reality. Genesis chapter 3. So let's look at this, this curse we live with. So consequences from sin in the beginning. The Lord God said first to the snake. Because you have done this, Mr. Snake, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So the curse on the snake was the snake was cursed and fall on its belly. To this day, 6,000 years later, snakes are gross evil, wicked, ugly-looking, scary, and they crawl on their bellies. This curse is still intact. Tangible evidence for us. Who else got cursed? Uh, Verse 15, Satan got cursed. I believe God is talking to Satan who was inside the snake. And I will put enmity or hatred between you, Satan, who was inside the snake, and the woman, Eve, and between your seed or descendants and her seed and descendants. So there's satanic opposition against the human race, specifically the descendants of Eve, and there has been for 6,000 years. And I think if you're a Christian, you are a seed of the woman, you're a descendant of Eve. Satan hates you. He is on the prowl. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. This is being fulfilled even today. The curse goes on because of Satan's animosity, hatred, hostility towards humanity, especially believing humanity tangible evidence this is true there is a curse on the savior verse 15 he shall bruise you on the head you shall bruise him on the heel that's talking about the savior satan would be allowed to hurt jesus through death through crucifixion so even jesus is cursed because of adam's sin that doesn't seem fair it's not fair jesus got punished by the father in genesis 3:15 because of adam's sin Well, that's the gospel, that's Christianity. Jesus willingly took on that consequence, that condemnation, that wrath of God the Father to be the substitute of sinners. So you even see the gospel beginning to glimmer 
early on in Genesis chapter 3 of the role of Jesus. Who else got condemned? Well, look at verse 16. Now God goes to Eve. Everybody's going to get punished. Um, to the woman, Eve, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Raise your hand if you have birthed a child. Put your hands down. Uh, I'm not going to ask, but it was probably painful according to this verse. 6,000 years later, uh, giving birth to a child normally, naturally, is the most excruciating pain I have been told that any human can endure. 6,000 years later, this curse is still intact. No woman can bypass this. No woman is exempt in this day. Unless, of course, you use all those goody, feely, numbing drugs. Sometimes that helps. But you can't bypass the curse. So the curse is still intact. These are all visual, tangible, ongoing reminders of what God says is true. Uh, who else got cursed? Go on to verse 17, uh, middle of the verse. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. God cursed planet Earth because of Adam's sin. Why are there earthquakes, tornadoes, and everything else that's bad in the natural world? Because God cursed the Earth because of Adam. God cursed Adam in several ways. Another way God cursed Adam, verse 18, thorns and thistles and weeds. Uh, another curse on Adam would be the sweat of his brow to get an existence. So even his very survival would be cursed. Work is hard. Work is toilsome. Surviving is painful. This life is hard. Duh. That's what this says. Every time I hear somebody say, my, my job is arduous. I hate it. It's terrible. It's painful. It's yeah. Genesis 3, once again, another tangible reminder that God's word is true. No one bypasses this curse. Survival in this life will be hard. It's supposed to be a reminder that God's word is true, that he curses sin and he provides the solution through Jesus Christ. And then finally, another curse on Adam is death. That's the end of verse 19, to the, the ground you're going to return. So death and people die every day. People die all the time. Every time a human being dies is a reminder that Genesis 3 is true. God must punish sin. That's why Jesus came. So with all the, so every single one of these curses I just mentioned to you is still true and ongoing today. You can see them. They're undeniable. Giving birth is painful. People die. There are weeds. We can't stop earthquakes. Another one that's not delineated here that Paul gives us is that as a result, every human being is born into this world with sin in their very constitution or nature. We inherit a sin nature that is part of the curse as well that's the worst of all actually in my opinion oh i skipped one well i did it on purpose go back to verse 16 now if every curse i just mentioned is still ongoing it's undeniable nobody's exempt it is still true it's still relevant today it's still happening then that would be true i believe of all the curses here including the one in verse 16 the second one given to the wife god said to eve and cursed her and said not only are you going to have tremendous, tumultuous pain in childbirth, another part of your curse is going to also be at the very heart of your existence and who you are as a woman, just like childbearing is. When you define a woman, how is a woman defined? She gives birth to children. She's married to a man. Those are supposed to be the two most cherished things she has in her life. And God cursed both of them. So at the end of verse 16, uh, not only is there going to be tremendous pain in your childbirth, here's the second curse on you, woman, wife. Your desire will be for your husband. Okay, Some few think this is a good thing he's saying to her. Oh, isn't this wonderful? He's going to desire her husband, and she's going to be romantic and uh, massage his feet and give him hot cocoa. No, that is not the desire he's talking about. This is bad desire. It's the same word that would be translated as lust. 
you're going to have a perverted, distorted lust. And not, not, not a sexual lust. Every other, every other one of these things was a curse and bad. This is a curse and it is bad. Here's going to be the state of your marriage. You are going, and by the way, it's present tense, ongoing, a continual action that's going to be true in your life and in your marriage and your relationship with your husband, and it will go throughout all history in perpetuity so that even though this happened 6,000 years ago, this is still true today in every marriage from one degree to another, from every wife, somewhere on the scale in the spectrum. So if you're a wife today, when was the last time you thought about this? Uh, I'll go on and finish it. Here is the curse. Your desire, your lust will be for uh, your husband, but he will rule over you. He must master you. Now, it's interesting. The word for desire in Genesis 3.16 is the exact same Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And the exact same word for rule at the end of verse 16 of Genesis chapter 3 is the exact same word used in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7. Those two words, same Hebrew words used in the same context, uh, so they mean the same thing in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, and it is bad. So it's a great analogy of what your curse is, wife. The husband got cursed in his very constitution of what he's supposed to do as a breadwinner. And the wife is cursed as well. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4 in Genesis. God is talking to Cain. Cain is evil. He is wicked. He is sinful. He's jealous of his brother. Uh, He kills his brother. God knows it. God knows his heart. God knows his motives. And God challenges him in verse 7. God says, uh, first in verse 6, why are you angry, Cain? And why is your countenance fallen? You look angry. Verse 7. If you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. If you do not do well, if you don't deal with this anger, uh, there's something bad's going to happen. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. Evil, wicked sin is at the door of your heart, Cain, and it has a lust for you. It has a desire for you. It wants to usurp your authority. It wants to overcome and overwhelm you. So that's the word there, desire. That is the exact same word used in Genesis chapter 3, 16, when God cursed the wife, that you're going to have an illegitimate desire, lust. An attitude of usurping the authority of your husband in an illegitimate manner. That is the curse. That will be characterized of your nature, naturally speaking. So he tells Cain, it's desires for you. And you know what, Cain? You need to master it. You need to counter it. You need to deal with it. And that's the exact same thing he says. So go back to Genesis chapter 3. Why is there divorce? Why is there animosity between husband and wife? Well, it's right here. It's We are cursed. Sin is the, the answer. And specifically, in a husband-wife relationship, uh, the wife is going to have a tendency, propensity, a susceptibility to wanting to usurp and illegitimately take away the authority and the leadership that God has given her as the husband of the relationship. That's what it says. But I have actually heard Christian wives at times say, oh, I'm not susceptible. That isn't me. Well, yeah, it is. If, if you're married and you believe that this isn't uh, you at any given moment, then you are self-deceived and you don't know what the Bible says. So the best thing you can do is apply it to yourself and realize, God, help me see this blind spot. How am I usurping the God-given authority of my husband? And maybe Titus chapter 2 would help you, and you get an older godly woman, and she can talk it through with you and help you out. 
give you some pointers. You know, scary, you know what a scary thing is to do? Is to talk to the people that know you the most. Talk to your mother and ask her. She might give you an honest answer that will hurt your feelings. Or one of your best friends or your sister or a sibling. Or uh, if you're really brave, ask your husband in a teachable moment. Uh, so that is the challenge. And, but that's the bad news. The good news is that in the New Testament, through Jesus Christ and the gospel and redemption and the indwelling Holy Spirit, this can be overcome moment by moment in daily life living the biblical roles that God gave husbands and wives. That's the good news. It is possible. But it starts with you and doing an evaluation. And there are manifestations of it. Of, and wives do this in different ways. And in a lot of times it depends on your personality. Because there are wives who are, they seem quite demure, or maybe they were raised in a culture you never speak back to your husband. You, but you can be kind of tactical and passive-aggressive and sneaky about it. It's going to leak out somewhere. So you've got to be honest with yourself and evaluate yourself and ask God, God, how am I, do I do this to my husband? How am I doing this to my husband? Whether it's being a micromanager, whether it's being having a critical spirit, whether it's having a, a bitter or unforgiving spirit, or whether it's feel like you always got to take the reins and take control and make the decisions. And yeah, my husband, he's an idiot and he can't make decisions and he's wishy-washy and he's consistent and he doesn't take charge and he doesn't take the lead. And these are all the ways and comments that it's manifest in marriage relationships. I know this from talking to married couples for years and years and years and reading all the counseling books. We have multitudinous examples of how this manifests itself. So the important thing for us as believers is to be honest in evaluating ourselves and, and own this. I have been cursed. God, help me. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross, setting me free from this curse, positionally speaking, and empowering me through the Holy Spirit to actually practically get better at overcoming this. Well, look at the end of verse 16. The husband doesn't get off scot-free either in this. Because after all, he's one with the wife. He's married to the wife. So there are implications for him as well. So that is mentioned at the end of verse 16. And he, the husband that you are trying to run over and smother and critique and control and complain about, the husband, he will rule over you, or some say he must rule over over you. In other words, that you create if the wife creates an action, then the husband's going to have a reaction. And it usually the reaction is goes in one of two directions. I know this from husbands. If there is a controlling, usurping, overbearing wife, which the Bible says that's true of every wife, the husband is going to usually respond one of two ways in his flesh. He is either going to want to resist conflict. Oh, I don't want to get into it with her again. And, he, and then the husband becomes more and more passive. Eventually, he is just missing in action. Before you know it, he's supposedly working 15 hours a day. He is never around. We've got all kinds of husbands who are just never around missing in action. Where in the world is dad? And a lot of times what drives that is he, didn't wanna, he doesn't want to deal with this. This is neglect. That's one extreme. And, and sometimes he'll just bail, forget it, and he goes and tries to find another wife who won't have this problem. Little does he know. The other extreme is reacting the other way. Oh, my wife is going to try to control me. <laughs> who does she think she is? I am the, the leader of this home. I am the head. I have God-ordained authority. Who does she think? And then you just go toe-to-toe. And if she's going this high, you're going this high. And then if she goes a little higher, you go higher. And there it is. This is the aggressive approach. So you've got the passive neglective approach and then you've got this overly growing aggressive approach on the part of husbands. This is in their flesh. They're not finding the proper biblical balance dealing with this problem. 
So this is why you have physically abusive husbands who literally hit and beat up their wives. Rarely do you have a news report or a woman in jail. Why are you in here? Oh, because I routinely beat up my husband. That's very rare. Mostly it's the husband beating up the wife that's physically overly aggressive. That's in the end of verse 16. So those are the two fleshly responses. And then there's the biblical response of the wife needs to understand through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, she needs to ask God to help her, and she needs to be submissive and respectful to her wife who is imp- or to her husband who is imperfect and sinful and doesn't always do the right thing. And she needs to be forgiving. And the husband, through the power of the Holy Spirit and redemption through Jesus Christ, needs to love his wife as Christ loved the church. The church is sinful, disobedient, finite, many times compromised, repeatedly making the same mistake and sinning, usurping authority that it doesn't belong to it, and yet Christ continues to forgive and forgive and forgive and stay committed to his precious bride. And that's the challenge of a Christian husband through the power of the Spirit. He needs to keep forgiving his wife and forgiving his wife and forgiving his wife and forgiving his wife and forgiving his wife. And I believe that's why God says through Paul in Colossians chapter 3, husbands, don't be embittered toward your wife. Being embittered towards a wife is a result of not forgiving your wife. So that's a tremendous challenge. Um, so let's go back to our handout. First Corinthians 7 now. So really what that is, that's not just a curse on the woman. That's a curse on marriage. So on the one hand, marriage is a blessed gift from God. That's a beautiful thing. And at the same time, it has been tainted or cursed with sin and the wrath of God. But in Christ is the solution. Through the gospel is the solution. Through the power of the Holy Spirit is the solution. So look at, so number two, uh, why, the, why is there a divorce? A divine curse. That leaves us with uh, verses three through, f- uh, number three, four, and five points. Uh, go to point number three. You've got the exhortation, the exception, and the examples. And this is all regarding divorce specifically. And I just want to do the first one here, number three, because it's kind of a summary of last time. So it will go quickly. Uh, looking at verses 10 and 11. After talking to single people uh, who were divorced or widowers uh, and also married Christians, uh, just about intimacy with one another, he comes to the topic of divorce. That's verse 10 and 11. And he says, but to the married. So this is uh, a Christian husband and Christian wife. They are married. I give this instruction. And he says, not I, but the Lord. So when he says, not I, but the Lord, he is referring to the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. Let me remind you of something that Jesus taught on regarding uh, marriage. This isn't coming from the Apostle Paul. I didn't make this up. This isn't new revelation. Um, Not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. In other words, uh, a believing wife shouldn't divorce her believing husband. That's Matthew 5, Mark 10, Matthew 19. That's Exodus 20. That's Genesis 2. This has always been God's view. God brings two together. They're one flesh. The ideal is that they stay married and not get divorced. That's all Paul is saying. Getting real basic. If you're both Christians, don't get divorced. Um, 
You shouldn't leave the husband. Verse 11, but if she does leave, if the Christian wife divorces her Christian husband, she must remain unmarried. So if a Christian wife divorces her Christian husband, she's not allowed to marry somebody else. So that's the limitation. So, I mean, I've actually witnessed several situations at previous churches, actually, throughout the last 20 years, either sitting in on the council, listening, talking to couples who were on the brink of divorce or they were separated or they're already in the midst of a divorce. Uh, most of these situations I was a witness to and wasn't leading through as the head pastor. But in every situation, there's a Christian couple who's a member of the church, and then we're meeting with them. Sometimes it's just one spouse. I want to I wanna divorce my wife. And the question I usually heard, which was the right one, is, so are you a Christian? Yes. Is your spouse a Christian? Yes. Okay, then what is your biblical reason for divorce? Sometimes it was, well, they committed adultery. Then that was to be investigated. Oh, okay. These are Christians considering divorce. Uh, several times we heard, uh, what do you mean biblical reason for divorce? Yeah, they're... If you're Christians, you're not supposed to get divorced. You're supposed to keep forgiving each other because Jesus forgave you of all of your sins. And you're, he's forgiven you more of your sins than you can forgive of your spouse. And he's committed to you. He's not going to divorce you. The sins you've committed against Jesus are way worse than anything your husband or your wife has committed against you. And yet he keeps forgiving you. So you're not supposed to divorce your believing spouse. Only in two situations is that even considered a possibility so what is your biblical reason for divorce and i've heard plenty of people say uh don't have one we don't get along i give up he's changed i've changed we have irreconcilable differences which means nothing and i've actually seen christians separate from one another in willful disobedience of what they knew scripture to teach You're not supposed to do that so that's what paul is addressing here uh, so that's point number three there, the exhortation that Paul is telling Christian couples, Christians, no divorce and no remarriage. No divorce, no remarriage. Verse 11, but if she does leave and get divorced, she must remain unmarried or, good news, or else be reconciled to her, her husband that she divorced. And that does happen. I've seen that too. That's kind of cool. That is supernatural forgiveness when God does that. Believers separate or believers get divorced and then they actually get back together, reconciled, Stronger than ever. It has happened. It does happen. God is into the restoration business. Um, at the end of verse 11, that the husband should not divorce his wife. So the Christian husband should never divorce his Christian wife if there aren't biblical reasons for doing so, adultery or whatever. Uh, so that's for those of you who are Christians, both husband and wife. It's real simple. No divorce, no remarriage. Uh, let's go on to the exception, uh, verses 12 through 16. Again, it's pretty self-explanatory so we can cover it um then paul goes on to the next demographic of people okay but to the rest i say now he's talking to unequally yoked in his congregation um you had pagans in Cor corinth paul came in preached the gospel and then maybe a wife heard the gospel and she got saved and her and her husband were pagans when they got married and she gets saved and she's still married to her husband but he's a pagan she's a christian he's a pagan whoa we got a mixed marriage now and then as the christian wife she's like whoa what do i do He's, he contaminates me. He's dirty. He's unclean. He's not saved. Maybe I should divorce him. And Paul's going to say, mm, not necessarily. Especially if he doesn't want to get divorced. Don't divorce him. So that's the unique thing that was going on here. In the time of Jesus in the Jewish culture, 
Jesus wasn't dealing with a bunch of pagans who weren't raised in Scripture and in the faith. They were raised in the true, pure religion of Yahweh God, the saving God, and the Old Testament Scriptures. And so, theoretically, you had believers marrying believers. You didn't have a case where you had an unbeliever marrying a believer in Jesus' day. And so Jesus did not teach on this scenario where you could have a believer and an unbeliever in a marriage in a pretty common way that now you have in Corinth. This is a new situation. You're dealing with new people. These are pagans, and uh, they need biblical revelation. And so God gives Paul new information, extra revelation, that doesn't that didn't come from the mouth of Jesus or the pen of the four gospel writers. And that's what he's going to address here. So... Uh, to the unequally yoked, I say, not the Lord. Okay, th- when he says not the Lord, he's not saying this is not uh, authoritative or he's not saying this is just Paul's opinion. He's saying the following instruction I give you or command doesn't come out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke or John. It's not there. It came directly from Jesus to me through divine inspiration. And it is binding and it is scriptural. Because I'm an apostle, according to chapter 1, verse 1, and because I have the Spirit of God, according to verse 40 at the end of this chapter. So here it is. But to unequally yoked, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother, okay, that's a believing husband, has a wife who's an unbeliever, and she consents to live with the believing husband, then the believing husband shouldn't divorce his unbelieving wife. There it is. And we see that's true all the time. One of them becomes a believer, and they have actually such a good rapport and friendship, they can actually get along. Maybe not on the spiritual level, but just about everything else in life, they still feel a oneness. And the unbelieving spouse wants to stay with their Christian spouse. And Paul says, then Jesus says, stay married. That's actually a good thing. Verse 13, and the woman who has an unbelieving husband, so this is uh, the wife is a Christian and the husband is not a Christian, which in my experience, this is actually more common in churches in America where the wife is saved and the husband isn't, statistically speaking. So if the wife is saved and the husband is not saved, but the unbelieving husband agrees to stay living with his Christian wife, even though she's kind of kooky and goes to those weird church events and brings home those tracts all the time and uh, those weird, crazy religious people that raise their hand and hoot and holler about Jesus and watches the funny TV shows, uh, I, I like my wife. She makes good eggs at breakfast. And he's just got a good friendship with her and he wants to remain in that relationship paul says that's a good thing don't divorce your husband she must not send her husband away verse 14 but then there are times where you get saved and it disrupts everything and then your unbelieving spouse doesn't want anything to do with you anymore i'm out of here you crazy kooky religious person see ya happens all the time that's verse 14 um for the unbelieving oh i'm sorry uh before i get to that uh verse 14 gives the reason why for 12 and uh, 13 for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband so this is a cool promise sanctified doesn't mean saved it just means set apart and actually what happens if an unbelieving spouse agrees to stay with the believing spouse that believing spouse has an umbrella of protection and god's special blessing because that believer is a child of god so they're in a incubator of blessing And if you're still married to your spouse, you bring your unbelieving spouse into that incubator of blessing. And they're going to benefit from that even in practical ways, maybe even in spiritual ways. God is going to rain down good on the just and the unjust in a unique kind of way because husband and wife, they are still one flesh, even though one is a Christian and one is not. So 
Paul's saying there are special blessings that rain down on the unbeliever if they remain married. And it, it even trickles over to the children. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So say uh, two pagans, the wife gets saved. They have eight kids together before the wife got saved. Now she gets saved. She's a Christian. She's clean. She's forgiven. And she thinks, oh, I can't be around my husband. He drinks beer and alcohol and he cusses and uh, my kids, they're not all saved and they're dirty and they're going to contaminate me spiritually and maybe I should just leave the family and bail on the kids. Some people thought that way. As a matter of fact, when there was a divorce in Paul's day in Corinth, the children went to the dad, not the wife. And Paul's saying, no. If you guys stay together as a married couple, if one spouse is saved and born again, you are a blessing to the unbelieving spouse. You're also a blessing to all of your children, whether they're saved or not. Your children are sanctified as well. Not saved. The little reward is set apart and sanctified or blessed in a unique way. They're going to be able to be raised up in a biblical home with a biblical worldview, with biblical principles, a biblical foundation, uh, some kind of unique blessing from God they wouldn't get if they were in a strictly total secular pagan home. That's what that is talking about. So with that, go to point number four there. What is the exception? When does God allow divorce and remarriage? Well, when there's an unequally yoked situation, but in, Paul goes in order. First consideration, stay married to your unbelieving spouse. So that's letter A. Stay married if your spouse is willing to live with you, even though they're not saved. Another principle of blessing, that's point B. One believer in a home sanctifies the whole family. Isn't that cool? If you've just got one saved person in a pagan family, you bring the blessing of God into that entire family in a way they don't even realize for their good. And then letter C, if an unbeliever leaves the Christian is free, that's letter C, then you're free from that bondage. And as a result, I believe you are free to divorce them, finalize the divorce, that's point one there, and you're also free to remarry if your unbelieving spouse abandons you and leaves. And that would be verse 15 and 16. I'll read it there. Yet if the unbelieving spouse leaves the believing spouse, let the unbeliever leave. The brother or sister, the Christian, is not under bondage to that marriage covenant anymore. God has called us to be at peace. God doesn't want you warring and fighting day after 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 day with your unbelieving spouse. That's not the will of God. God wants peace in the home. And theoretically, you had peace when you first got married, when you so-called loved each other verse 16 for how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband you can't just cling on to your unsaved husband forever even if he wants to leave thinking that well if i just keep evangelizing and keep praying and evangelizing someday he's going to get saved you don't know that that's god's sovereign choice that's god's decision or how do you know oh husband whether you're going to save your unbelieving wife i don't know that so if the unbelieving wife wants to leave you need to let her go in peace and let God do his work. God may save that unbeliever at some point, but that is at his discretion, his timetable. I'm going to actually stop there, which is fine because uh, 17 through 24 is actually a good foundation and segue into the rest of the chapter for single people. Uh, so we'll pick that up next week, plus dealing with single people next week and what Paul says. And I would like to close with two wonderful verses out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. These are two good verses to go have lunch on. Kind of preliminary uh, appetizers, spiritually speaking. 
especially for those of you who have experienced a divorce. I mean, going through this, some of you might be thinking, wow, I didn't know this. Man, I wish I knew this 10, 15 years ago. Wow, uh, I made the wrong decision. Wow, uh, we sinned against God. Wow, what do we do now? Wow, I've been divorced and remarried five times. Do I go back to my first husband and chase him down <laughs> and marry him and get right so I can be right with it? No. That's why Paul wrote 17 and following in 1 Corinthians. He just says, don't do anything. When in doubt, don't do anything. Stay still. Thank Jesus for his death and resurrection on your behalf. Thank him for forgiveness of all sin. You're good. And with that, the cherry on top, these two verses. Let's go ahead and look at them. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you have messed up, if you've blown it, if you've made wrong decisions, if you have sinned or been sinned against, but you are now a Christian, this is reality. This will do away with your guilt. Now that you're a born-again Christian, regardless of what position you're in in terms of your marital status or social status, there, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if any person is a Christian, that Christian is a new creature. Can I get an Amen. You are a new creation, a new creature as a result of salvation. And not just from the day you got saved, but as long as you are a Christian, you are a new creature. Even better news. The old things passed away. The yuck of my historical life passed away. Uh, My divorces that were ungodly or yucky or hurtful have passed away. All of my sin and everything else behind me has been passed away. It's been crucified. It's been washed in the blood. It's been totally forgiven. God has cast it as far as from the east as from the west. That is the gospel. And behold, all things are now new. That is your status before Almighty God, regardless of what has happened in your past, if you know Jesus Christ personally. Gets better. Look at verse 21, because this is how Jesus made it possible. He came to die for sin. And on divorce, a lot of people give pat answers or short answers, simplistic answers, and leave it at that and say, well, what do you think about divorce? God hates divorce. Yeah, that's a verse out of the Old Testament. But you could quote Proverbs six sixteen through 19 too and list the seven other things that God hates. God hates lying. Ouch. God hates evil thinking. Ouch. God hates gossip. Oops. God hates thieves. Oops. That probably gets all of us. And the wages of sin, any sin, is death. So <laughs> in the end, we're all in the same place. So... Saying God hates divorce is not the sufficient, complete answer. God hates all sin. All sin must be punished, condemned by God. And the good news is God provides forgiveness and rescue. And here's how he did it. He did it through the blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to earth to be the substitute for sinners, that all of their sin can be forgiven. How did he do it? Verse 21, 2 Corinthians 5. God the Father made Jesus, he him, who knew no sin. Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He was God in a body. God made him to become sin, to be sin. Our sin on the cross. On our behalf as our substitute. In order that so that we who are believers might become as a result of believing in Jesus Christ death and resurrection on our behalf when God the Father punished Jesus on the cross as our substitute. Literally when God the Father punished Jesus on the cross God the Father punished you on the cross. And all of your sin. Condemned you to death through Jesus, your vicarious substitute, in order that we as believers who used to be sinful might become new creatures, that is the righteousness of God in Christ. What does that mean? 
That means that Jesus took on our sin at the cross and we took on His perfect righteousness at the cross. Isn't that amazing? So when God the Father looks down from heaven today and you are a Christian, He doesn't see all of your sin. He sees you pristine and sinless just as Jesus Christ is. That is absolutely amazing. That is the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with that, let's go ahead and thank the Father for that great news. Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for the treasure of your word. Thank you for going on a rescue mission, Lord Jesus, to rescue sinners. That's why you came into the world, to seek and to save those who were lost. You came not to be served, but be a servant to sinners. And we thank you for your death on our behalf. We thank you for absorbing the Father's holy wrath for us. Thank you for burying it in the ground forever. Thank you for your powerful resurrection. Thank you for giving us total forgiveness in the very righteousness of God Almighty and that we have perfect standing with God the Father today as children of God because of faith in you. We give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you please rise? Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.